This episode of The Curious Life contains a personal account and discussion of childhood sexual assault, which may be distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Curious Life podcast. My name is Yana Firestone. Today I'm joined by the incredible Darcy Ehrlich, who has courageously been fighting an international battle for justice for many years now. Darcy, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for inviting me here. Well, your story, I think, is an incredibly important one. And unfortunately, it's far from over at this point. But for people that aren't aware of what's been going on for you, your story's really become public in the last few years, but it's been going on much longer than that, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, my life. Yeah. So you were raised in the ultra-Orthodox Adas community, which is a very, very insular section of the Orthodox Jewish community here in Melbourne. And you did have a really tough time as a child, didn't you? You had a difficult time with your parents. My parents were uh, very abusive. Mm. And were there people who were aware of what was happening to you as a child outside of your own family? We tried extremely hard to hide it. Mm. So if there were bruises, we were kept home from school. Um, And it just child abuse or you know parental abuse in that community was seen as you know something against your reputation so Mm. we tried to hide it because we didn't want to be kind of marred by people knowing that we came from a home where our parents were abusing us yeah and I think that's that's such a good point isn't it when you're raised in any kind of community that is insular like that so much of it is about your reputation so you're raised to believe you need to be the best possible bride option in the community and you want people to think well of you and your family so that you can marry well and have kids and keep the religion going I suppose oh absolutely I mean it all comes down to your marriage options as you and there are arranged marriages so you're only going to be put up with someone that is has as good as reputation as you do yeah now, I think there would be a lot of people in the, in the wider Melbourne community that may not really have known anything about the Adas community outside of other members of the Jewish population. So you've kind of blown the lid, let's say, on what happened to you, which we'll get to shortly, but also on the community itself. And I think maybe people have been surprised by what actually happens inside the community. Well, I think, I mean, I grew up in East St Kilda. Mm. That's, uh, I think, a part of Melbourne that everyone knows. And it's, you know, that type of community that I I could see what was happening outside of my community. So I witnessed this world that I was completely not a part of. Mm. It's very insular. We didn't speak to anybody outside of our community. The teachers that came into the community that were from outside of the community because we had a a school in the community were pretty much told what they weren't and and were allowed to say to us. Everything was censored. Uh, The information we had was only the stuff that we were allowed to have, so we didn't have any access to any information outside of that. Mm. Um, And so everything that we were, that was told to us, we believed. And why wouldn't you? I mean, it's everything that you knew. It was your whole world. And I guess for kids in that situation, it makes you even more vulnerable, doesn't it? Because 
there is no measure as to what is okay and what isn't. No, I mean, the adults in your world are the adults in your world and there's no one else to compare it to. So that's all you know. Yeah. And so you're already in this community, you're already a child at risk because you haven't got protective parents at home. So for the time that you were at the Adust School, were you there as a young child all the way through? All the way through to year 12, although they didn't do VCE there, that would have been too much for the school to handle, too much exposure to the outside world. So, yeah, yeah, we did uh, quite a few TAFE subjects in school. Okay. And so before Principal Malka Leifer came to the school, what was life like for you at the school? I remember school being my safe place. It was my place, you know, away from home, a place where I could try and just be myself and not have to worry about what was going on at home. I wasn't a very expressive kid. I was quite introverted, but I had my little group of friends and I felt quite safe at school. Okay. And I guess all of that changed in the years to come. So is it, am I right that it was in the year 2000 that Lifer took the role as principal? Yes. She arrived in Australia from Israel. She was brought out by the school to take uh, the role of principal as the school. And she took over very quickly. I think 2001, she was the principal of the whole school. And I came to know her through my sister, um, who had connected with her and found her to be someone supportive and had kind of opened up uh, the door to telling her about what was going on at home. That would have been pretty unusual for you and your sister to be talking about the secrets at home out loud. So I'm assuming that Lifer started a grooming process where she was making herself a trusted person in your life oh absolutely I mean we didn't dare to tell anybody we were absolutely petrified of talking to anybody about what was going at home because we knew how it would reflect on us and so when my sister told me she had been talking to um, Al-Khalifa about this I was pretty shocked at the beginning and then she told me no she's been really supportive she wants to help she wants to do what she can you know she's happy to intervene at times if that's necessary and, and that's how I approached her and asked her for help. And so how old were you at that time? I was around um, 14, 15 when she came into the school. Mm-hmm. And I probably started talking to her when I was around 15 years old. Okay. So at that point, you'd had nobody as a protective adult in your life. And then this person comes in almost giving everything to you on a platter that she was there in a role of power position of power she could step in and intervene with the challenges that you were facing at home keep the secrets that you needed to be kept from the wider community and then starting to gain your trust in a way that nobody else had before that yeah I mean she wasn't just the principal of the school she was like you know larger than life type of person everybody looked up to her and respected Mm -hmm. her and idealized her and she very quickly turned the culture of the school you know where she was at the helm of it and everybody kind of revolved around her so to have someone's attention like that felt incredibly powerful Mm. in a a world that I had very little power absolutely and I think that is such a key point and just to draw comparison to the wider community so often when we hear about stories like this it's so often people that are magnanimous in that way and have that charisma and the the way of shining the light on you that makes you feel really special and really important and what we understand now about the grooming process is that's often all part of it, isn't it? It's not just the victim who's being groomed, but often it's their families or the community that they're in. And it's a, a much wider net 
than one might imagine to begin with. Oh, absolutely. She groomed the entire community. Mm. And now people, you know, sometimes come back to me and say, oh, you know, we wish we would have known then, you know, we were really good friends or she did this or she did this for us. Um, she, she did it very expertly um, and that's the way that they work. So what then changed for you? Like when was the turning point for you where it went from trusted adult to something much darker? Well, it was a very slow process. So it began very slowly and, you know, she was testing my boundaries and she would test my boundaries further and further. And I didn't know anything. I had absolutely no sexual education whatsoever. And so what she was doing to me, she was telling me that was love. And again, I had no experience with what love meant either, Mm. not having experienced it with my parents. So when she told me that that was love, I believed her. Mm. And um, it kind of turned dark when she started making such a secret about it. Mm -hmm. And it felt wrong. It felt wrong that she was, you know, taking off my clothes and doing what she wanted with me. But I still didn't understand and I still didn't have the words for it. But I just, I didn't know what to do. I just, you know, did what I had to do. And um, I disassociated from it. That was my coping mechanism for what was happening. And I disassociated from when it was happening. And the other times that I spent with her when it wasn't happening at school or, um, you know, seeing her in the corridor at school, it was like she was a different person. So were you still able to see her in that glowing light outside of those private moments together? No, not mm-hmm. really. Um, I was constantly trying to hide from her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could see her at school and see what, you know, kind of I had to go to her sometimes and, and talk to her about different subjects. She was she was my teacher as well at the time. She was teaching me. And then as I became uh, graduated school and then became a teacher at the school, she was my boss. So mm-hmm. I still had to talk to her and I still had to communicate with her. So when I was doing that, it was like she was a different person than the person that was, you know, taking me into rooms and, and doing what she was doing with me. That's so interesting that you, you know, had so many dual relationships with her. You know, you were a student under her. You were, she was your principal. She was your teacher. She was your boss. And at the time that you were working at the school, was she still finding moments and getting you alone and continuing with the abuse? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I still didn't know any better. I had graduated school and had gone right back to the school to teach Jewish subjects. So it wasn't like I had any further education about what was happening or any further understanding of what was happening. And because my schedule was a lot more flexible, the abuse actually only increased at that time. Wow. Okay. So I think that's something that maybe people weren't aware of, that it continued even as as a member of staff at the school. Life sort of kept moving forward for you, didn't it? And and you were teaching. And how long after you started teaching were you married? I was engaged within a few months of teaching. Um, I was set up with um, a boy from another Jewish family. And we were engaged and got married four months later. Wow. Okay. And how were you feeling about getting married at that time? I mean, to to a lot of other people, the process sounds strange. You know, I met him four times over a week with my parents supervising and we decided, okay, we're going to get married. Our ideals and values of what a Jewish life should look like, you know, kind of matched up. And that's what we were told we were supposed to look for. Mm -hmm. 
And um, at the time, I was so excited. I mean, that's what all my friends were doing. This is what I was told was my goal in life to, you know, get married, have kids, be a Jewish mother. So I was overjoyed. Okay. And maybe was there a part of you that was thinking, like, this is my escape. I'm out of this house. Yeah. Absolutely. That was my my number one goal. Okay. (laughs) So you were married within four months. And where did you guys live straight away? Actually, we... The, the way that the community works is if a couple gets married and they're going to live overseas and we were going to live in Israel, usually the, um, the community will open up one of their you know houses or something for the couple to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and Malka Leifer's daughter got married the same time that I got married in Israel. So her house was available and she made it available to my husband and I to live in until we went to Israel, which was very strange because... You know, I'm living in this house with my with my husband in the same house that I was abused at, mm. you know, abused by Mal Khalifa, um, in the same bed and on the same, you know, couches and stuff. And because I was so disassociated, you know, it's just like I had cut that part of my life off and that was it. Like it wow. wasn't – I was in complete denial. Wow. And I guess that's your your brain's way of keeping you protected, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you lived in that house for... Only for a few weeks, and then we moved to Israel. Okay. And we lived in Israel for about two years. Okay. And um, it was during my time in Israel that I uh, disclosed to a counsellor there um, that I had been abused by Leifa. And from what I've heard, you know, in some of the other interviews that you've done, it wasn't even something that you were consciously aware of as being... A trigger for the symptoms you were having at the time was it no I mean I wasn't the one that put two and two together I went to the counselor and I expressed some of the things that I was thinking uh, with uh, with her and she said to me you know something doesn't add up uh, something must have happened to you and I kind of said well you know I had this um, you know this is what happened to me in high school and she yeah I mean, she didn't believe me at first because she knew Mal Khalifa, um, but she was the one that eventually contacted the school and set the whole ball rolling. Mm, amazing. And at the same time, again, it's all these kind of layers of relationships, isn't it? There's not really, there wasn't really any part of this story that was happening outside of the community. So again, it's trusting people within the community to do the right thing. And as we know from what happened a little bit further down the track maybe not everybody was on the same page about how to help i think that there's a very different version of what you know the right thing is mm, yeah since we're alluding to it we might as well speak about it so not long after you disclosed what had happened to your counselor am i right that the community was alerted in melbourne yeah and then how soon after just talk me through the process does it go to the rabbis or who gets the information first uh so one of the teachers in the school got the information she confirmed that there were uh, several victims of mal khalifa um that she knew personally and she went to the rabbis in the community and i believe there was some sort of meeting with these rabbis where they decided how they were going to what they were going to do with this information and um, then they approached the school board mm-hmm. and that's, the school board meeting was held and it was at that meeting, that, um, that final meeting, a few days later after these allegations had surfaced, that uh, Malka Leifer was confronted and, said, and they, uh, they, told her, they put these allegations to her 
Um, and her response was, you know, you're lying, you're ruining my reputation, I'm not going to stand for this. And within hours, the board had decided that they were going to pay for her tickets to leave Israel that night. Wow. I mean, that is just, no matter how many times you hear that, it's just so shocking to, to think that another teacher has come forward and said, I know several victims you've come forward in Israel and said this has happened your sister also confirmed that it had happened to her so we're talking about many victims that the board knows about and yet the response is to send her off to Israel yeah get her out of the jurisdiction as quickly as possible yeah and make it somebody else's problem and it did become somebody else's problem Mm -hmm. and that's the absolutely shocking devastating part of it because it's not like you know when someone knows how to groom a community and sexually abuse people in the community um, that they're just going to stop just because they've been moved to another country that's right I actually read something it must have been an article from the Israeli media where somebody from the community that Lifer was sent to in recent years has come out and said that his daughter was abused that she was tutoring people in the Emmanuel community and that he knows of a number of victims he's filmed her touching people inappropriately so certainly just from that alone it sounds like even with all of these things in place legally at the moment there's she's really been entitled to do whatever she wants over there yeah unfortunately that's the way that a lot of the jewish community has worked the ultra orthodox jewish community because i mean the allegations are that she was abusing before she came to australia Mm. and they were sending their problems somewhere else Uh, if it would have been dealt with then you know none of this would have happened and i can't help thinking about that sometimes Mm, absolutely do you think this might be a silly question but do you think if she had been a man it would have been dealt with differently no no same thing yeah i i know of several cases where um there have been men in the ultra orthodox jewish community that have been moved around Mm -hmm. okay so I guess it's you know not dissimilar to what has been happening in the Catholic Church and other big organisations, small organisations where people have access and the community is closed off enough that people feel like they can get away with things. Yeah, and they know that the community leaders are willing to sacrifice you know individuals for the reputation or for the good of the community. So they know that they're safe to do what they want to do. And, um, and if they're caught, well, they'll just be sent somewhere else to continue doing that. Yeah. Well, what this community didn't count on was the strength of you and your sisters who were determined not to let this go. Well, I think, I don't think Malka Leifer counted on us ever having a voice. Yeah. Um, I mean, when, when we knew her, when she knew us, you know, we were quite shy, submissive, you know, pretty much voiceless. Mm. Um, no, with no one to talk to. I don't think she ever imagined that one day we, we might be able to speak about this and tell, what, tell everyone what had gone on and to get justice. <laughs> So what was the first step for you in deciding to actually pursue legal action? My uh, younger sister rang me up in 2011 and said, I'm giving a police statement. And I was shocked. You know, I hadn't even thought about it at the time. I didn't even really know that that was something that I could do. I was still living, you know, kind of that trajectory of an ultra-Orthodox woman in the community. I had moved back to Australia. I was... I had um, given birth to my daughter. 
I was living with it still within their dust community. She had uh, moved out of their dust community mm-hmm. and she had um, uh, very, some very positive relationships with people outside of the community. And they had told her, you know, this is something that you could do and you should do. And she had gone to the police and given her statement. So when she told me that, I thought, you know, she has had the courage to do this. I should be able to do this too. I don't want my daughter growing up in a community that, Mm. you know, where this is just allowed to happen. And um, at the same time, my marriage was breaking down. I was suffering from quite uh, bad postpartum depression. And I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. Um, And it was through that psychiatric hospital, which was a mother and baby unit, I was able to get the courage to go to the police as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that's so important. There's so many things you touched on here that I'd love to kind of talk about, if that's okay. Uh, The fact that, you know, you've also spoken really publicly about your battle with postnatal depression and with self-harming I think is something you know in my other world as a as a therapist it's not spoken about publicly enough and I think that people are often afraid that if someone's self-harming it means that they're trying to end their lives but in fact it's often quite the opposite isn't it oh yeah I mean I gave a uh, talk about self-harm last year which was just centered around self-harm not as uh, as, you know something got to do with suicide Mm -hmm. Uh, for me and for some people that could be the case but for a lot of people that I've spoken to and that I've engaged with self-harm is a way to keep themselves safe from um, you know becoming suicide or to deal with those really big emotions that are coming up and uh, are needing to be dealt with in, in a coping mechanism that they are able to without, um, you know, attempting suicide. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, something that I see in, in my other work. Often families are really worried when they hear that they've got a child who's self-harming and they think it's absolutely suicidality and something extremely worrying. But it just sort of indicates to me that there's stuff that needs to be talked about and things that need to maybe be unearthed. <laughs> You talked about seeing a counsellor in Israel and then you came back to Australia. And how long after that did you have your daughter? About a year after that. About a year. So in that year, was was there any support that you were getting in between the counselling work that you had in Israel and then going to the mother and baby unit? Well, no. (laughs) I mean, I came, I kind of stopped seeing the counsellor after I disclosed to her. Um because what had kind of you know happened from that was just too much for me to mm. think about I just you know kind of was still quite a bit in denial I didn't want to think about it didn't want to know yeah. about it came back to Australia um, you know came back to the same community there was a lot of gossip about what was going on no one would talk to me directly about mm. it but everyone knew that I was the one that had disclosed um, the sexual abuse so there was a lot of type of talk and gossip and all of that um, became pregnant and I started kind of um, feeling depressed around six months into the pregnancy mm-hmm. I started seeing a therapist at that time mm-hmm. um, uh, who was very helpful and then eventually um, connected with Sakaza which is the Southern Eastern Centre Against Sexual Assault and saw a therapist there to, who I still see to this day fantastic yeah they're a great organization oh absolutely so what's the community attitude to getting psychological help um when I was growing up I don't know if it's changed now when I was growing up it was something that was you know you you're ashamed about Mm. you don't really talk about it you hide it 
um it's something like oh you know you know she's in therapy you know what's the issue mm-hmm. when i was in hospital i was with two other women from the dust community were in hospital with me in the psychiatric hospital and any time that they saw any of my family come to visit me they asked you know they'd ask me for for you know for me to warn them because they wanted to hide they were scared that it would get back to the community that oh. they were in there as well yeah so i think that was the kind of the attitude towards you know mental health in the community yeah it's interesting because that's the stuff obviously that's where you were able to deal with the trauma of your experience and maybe that's something that you've been able to give to the community that maybe it is something that people will be able to access more easily because you are talking about it so much maybe other people will think well maybe it is an option maybe there are things that I can do to get the support that I need I think as a whole our society is changing the way that we look at mental health Mm. Um, and I think that is filtering through to the community that's great if you want to talk too much about your ex-husband and the marriage but I understand from what from interviews you've done before that he's still a part of the community and his family is all still a part of the community so how has that been for you being so vocal about the community and what's happened to you and bearing in mind the whole reputation concept within the community how much of a challenge was that for you guys as a couple and then now as co-parents living very different lives? Well, our marriage didn't survive it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was giving my police statement, I, like I said, my marriage was breaking down already. Yeah. Um, and when I left hospital the first time, you know, I separated from my husband and then we got divorced very shortly after that. So we haven't really spoken much about this. Um, even when I had disclosed to that therapist in, in Israel, we had spoken about it once or twice and then you know we kind of didn't speak about it ever again mm-hmm. so i haven't really had um much besides for um having well, i have shared custody with my uh, ex uh, for our daughter we don't really talk about anything else okay so for her it's just about helping her balance these two very different worlds as you know as much as possible mm. it's unusual to have a child with one parent who's part of the adust community and one who's not so how does that happen now it's tough it's mm. not it's not easy it's something as she grows older that's becoming more difficult um you know she has a lot of pressure to live you know that their dust way of life and then she comes to my house which I keep a lot of Jewish traditions because I don't want her there to be such a big difference between her mm. father's house and my house. Um, but at the same time, I have different values and different ideals than you know what her father would have. So it's something that we're constantly balancing and constantly trying to work out. And it's it's not an easy process, not for not for myself and not for her. But I just keep telling her, you know, it's about respecting you know where we all are in life mm. and and having tolerance for everybody else and just you know living the, the choices that we've made um and respecting everybody else's choices wow and what a powerful role model for her if you think about what she would have been raised with had you stayed in the community the focus would most likely have been on finding a good partner or a good match and having a family and being a good wife and a good Jewish woman and now she's seeing her mom go out and conquer the world and talk in Israel and in New York and all over the media and really share your strength 
with the world. I mean, what a model for her. She doesn't know that much about <laughs> what I'm doing. Yet. <laughs> Yet. She will one day. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I hope that, that she can see um, that there are other ways of life, you know, that are just as valid. Mm. Because the the uh, message that she's getting from from the community is that's the only valid way of life i know that that's the way i grew up so i'm just hoping that she sees that there are other ways of life that are just as valid yeah well i think you're doing a great job of laying down the foundations and when she's old enough she will be able to access all of this yeah Bringing it back to Malka Leifer, as we know, she's living in Israel. When she first went to Israel, she was essentially living just completely free and tutoring children again in Israel. And then you started the extradition process, didn't you? Yes. So we gave our police statements in 2011 and we were told, and I think my sister still has the email, you know, you've given your police statements now, we're going to be on the next plane, you know, we're going to send this to Israel, we'll extradite her and she'll be back, you know, in a few months on a plane back to Australia. Yeah. I mean, we're in 2019, <laughs> we're nowhere near that yet, although we are a big step closer. Yeah. But um, yes, uh, the, the extradition request was sent to Israel in 2012, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then in 2014, Malka Leifer was arrested for the first time. And that was a shock to us. I mean, we had kind of, okay, we'd given our police statements, we'd put it behind us in a way. Um, and then suddenly, I think I was overseas in Europe with my sister, and I get a call, you know, Malkalife has been arrested in Israel. And we were just all shocked. Okay. I mean, we hadn't expected that. Mm. And um, she very quickly managed to find her way out of jail. Mm. So she uh, claimed that she was mentally unfit, that she was on house arrest. And then she was supposed to turn up at court to start this extradition process. And as everyone knows, she never did that and kept claiming that she was so mentally unwell she couldn't get out of bed or she she was catatonic, she had panic mm-hmm. attacks, she needed a carer to help her and there was no way that she could make it into court. Mm-hmm. And so in 2016, the case was suspended and she was allowed to go free. And then early 2017, we saw a photo of her walking around, you know, one of the really big Jewish festivals in in Moron in Israel. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we thought to ourselves, if she's so well that she's able to go to this really big, you know, kind of festival and and be a part of of something like that, someone that has panic attacks and can't get out of bed and is so unwell and, you know, needs a a carer to help with their daily living tasks is not is not someone that can go to this you know huge yeah. festival um she she if she's well enough to go to that she's well enough to face justice and that's when we started the uh bring life back campaign mm-hmm. and that was quickly taken you know to the highest levels of government in, in australia and in israel and you know has been well publicized by the media but um, it led to a private investigation um, into Malka Leifer and she was found to be living a completely normal life. Mm. And it was actually, she was getting like six monthly checks by three psychiatrists to see where she was up to in her mental health and they were supposed to relay back to the courts if the case could begin again. And she had given her like her third six monthly you know, assessment with these three psychiatrists and at, at that assessment, you know, she came in with a family member. She refused to talk to the psychiatrist. And, they, you know, the psychiatrist very quickly said, oh, she's too unwell. Um, and it was a few days later that she was arrested again for faking and mm. feigning mental illness. And so is there any charge that can be brought against her for that faking of the illness? 
Well, the charges that she were arrested, what well, that she was arrested on, was obstructing justice and okay. fake and feigning mental illness, yeah. um, and that kind of went through the domestic courts in Israel for a little while. But they've kind of put that to the side now in interest of the extradition case. Okay. So you had some big news about the case. So what are we looking at? What's the latest? We're looking at um, we've had fifty-two court hearings now in regards to Malka Leifer's mental health since two thousand and fourteen. And we'll finally heard from Israel that we may actually have the last and final court hearing in regards to her mental health. So we're very much hoping that on the 23rd of September, the judge will rule that Malkaleva is fit to stand extradition trial. We still have to have an extradition trial after that, but that's yeah. not supposed to be more than one or two hearings. Okay. Um, but this is supposed. To, this is one of definitely one of the big defining factors in this whole journey. Wow, it's massive. <laughs> One of the things when I was doing some research, I came across some information that the Israeli Deputy Minister for Health has been acting in an unorthodox way and was found to be trying to obtain false papers around Lifer's psychiatric state. Is that correct? He has allegedly mm-hmm. um, been interfering in this case. So there hasn't been no findings as of yet. He hasn't been charged with anything, but he is under investigation in regards to interfering with this case and pressuring psychiatrists um, to change their rulings from mentally fit to mentally unfit. And um, actually, we are hoping that in the new Israeli government that he's not appointed health minister, but we know Mm -hmm. that that's very likely the case. And we're hoping to raise some awareness about that and see if there's anything we can do to ensure that he is not the new health minister. Because, I mean, the recent news reports from Israel show that this is not the only case that he has been involved in. There have been many sexual offenders that he has helped over his term um, as health minister and someone like that someone who's you know in charge of Israel's vulnerable and Mm. and children shouldn't be in the position that he's in absolutely do you know anything about his links to the Adas community is it just or is it across the board in Israel well his he is very strongly linked in with the Gore community in Israel um, which Malkalifa is quite li- uh, closely linked into as well. And that's okay. a very powerful community in Israel. Okay. I mean, it's just so, I mean, disappointing is not even the word. When you've come so far and you've spent seven years fighting this absurd <laughs> case where she's claiming to be catatonic and is out at festivals and seen doing all kinds of things publicly just to even get to the extradition case and then you've got all these other people in very high powered positions interfering how do you actually find the strength to just keep going i mean someone asked me you know now that you know what powerful friends malkalifa has you know i does that make you you know more like intimidated but it doesn't because we have each other you know i have my sisters and we have so much support we have support of a society that knows that you know justice needs to be done here and and we can continue fighting because we have that support absolutely well you're doing an amazing job and what would be the next step so say we get to september 23rd there's an extradition hearing it goes for one or two hearings and there she's found that she is fit for extradition she's brought here not quite yet okay so she's found if she is found to um 
be um, suitable for extradition, then that most likely will go to the Supreme Court, which will take another couple of months. And then the Minister of Justice, who we don't know who it is at this point in time in Israel, has to sign off on that. And then, you know, there's um, the Australian police who I've met with several times over the past couple of years um, have said, you know, they're very much looking forward of getting onto that plane and going <laughs> to pick her up. <laughs> Okay. And are you thinking further down the line in terms of, you know, then the criminal case that would need to happen here in Melbourne? Yes. Um, actually, I'm, I'm supposed to meet with the OPP um, in a couple of weeks and they'll take us through that process again. But from what I can remember when we met them last time, um, you know, she'll come here. There'll be, you know, the process that every everyone has to go through when they're here, but they fully intend to prosecute this case. Okay, fantastic. So what would be your message to other survivors who maybe are looking at everything that you've been through and are a bit ambivalent about what to do because it might seem like a big undertaking to actually speak out? What would be your message to them? That's that's a really hard one because this process has definitely taken a toll, but I've also learned so much from this process and I've gained so much from this process. Mm-hmm. And even though there's, you know, it's taken a toll on, on my life, I think the things that I've been able to feel that I've been, you know, been able to accomplish has been amazing. Mm. Um, but I think the most important thing is to having that support system. I mean, really, with a good support system, you can do anything that you put your mind to. Um, and having a good support system while going through this process, going to the police and then go through a legal process is really the most important thing. Mm. And I guess on the flip side of that, what would you say to parents who are listening to your story and wondering how do I keep my child safe how do I make sure that this isn't happening to them definitely I would say the biggest thing is having open communication mm-hmm. with your child and having that relationship with your child that your child knows they can come to you and tell you anything that it would be the absolutely most biggest protective factor in protecting your children mm-hmm. absolutely really important for people to remember as well that you know recently there was the Michael Jackson documentary where we had adult men talking about for the first time their experiences of sexual abuse with somebody very powerful who groomed their families and their whole communities in fact the whole world and there are a lot of people that say well it doesn't it doesn't make sense that you're only thinking about this as an adult you're only working this out now surely why wouldn't you have spoken out before but I think you were saying beautifully before that when you're going through something like that, you dissociate from the events to protect yourself. So it's only much later that you can actually start to think about what's happened to you as an adult. Oh, absolutely. And be ready to face it. Mm. But I think people that say that, you know, why did you only come out now? Why didn't you come out before? I mean, look at the environment that people are coming out in and the Mm. pushback that they're getting and the ramifications of speaking out. You know, it takes someone incredibly brave and someone strong enough to be able to do that. And when you're dealing with your own issues that have been caused by the abuse, Mm. I mean, who needs that on top of all of that? Absolutely. I think we need to probably just exercise a bit more caution before passing judgment on what people are brave enough to talk about so publicly. Oh, absolutely. And I think every story makes a difference. Every story is helping the next person that has experienced abuse and and needs to talk about it and 
you know, and to get justice. Every story is helping um, than the future generations. Absolutely. Well, I think you're doing an amazing job of that, Dussie. Thank you. So where can people get in touch with you if they want to chat with you or contribute to the cause in some way? Where, what's the best way for them to get in touch? I have my Facebook page, so that's or Twitter, um, Dussie Ehrlich, uh, Beyond a Survivor. And um, that's a great page. I update that pretty regularly about what's happening with the case or anything else that's relevant. And I get a lot of messages through there um, and sometimes I'm able to help the people that contact me and sometimes I'm able to refer them on to other people or other services that can help them. Um, And sometimes it's just about people wanting to be heard. Mm. So that's really important. Well, it's amazing that you're able to be so generous with your time, considering how much you've got going on with your case, um, to be able to provide that support to people. Yeah, I mean, this at this time in my life, this is what I'm doing. And I've really... You know, at times I've struggled with that, that this is, I feel, you know, oh, my life is back to, you know, being about life. Uh, but I think it's so much more than that. And I've kind of come to terms with the fact that this is where my life is right now. And this is what I'm doing. And I have a voice and I have, you know, I, we are being heard. Um, and I want to use that to, um, to the most that I can, I can use that. Well, I think the name of your page says it all, Beyond a Survivor, because as you say, you're you're beyond the point of surviving what happened to you. Now, this is what happens next. And I'll put a link to your Facebook page in the show notes. But Darcy, keep up the great work. We'll certainly be following along very closely on the 23rd of September and seeing what happens and keeping our fingers and toes crossed for you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we need all of that. <laughs> oh, thanks so much for your time, Dusty.